Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our series on the Epistle to the Romans. Yes, I'm going to pretend that I didn't have to skip a week again. My apologies. Uh, let's say my dog ate the track that I recorded, and now I have to do it again because he stole it right out of SoundCloud. Or, in all actuality, I was finishing up a massive, massive, massive project that required me to do it every single day, and now I have time to record for the very Lutheran project four or five times a week. So, by all means, I should be more faithful about this Bible study series, more consistent at least, in the future. We'll get to it more. But, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles uh, if you want to see where we've gone thus far, I have a good summary of everything um, in the last entry on the Romans series here. We're just going to start here in Romans chapter 4, and we're going to be here in verse 13. 4. Well, dang, now we have to figure out what that 4 is there for. Okay, we have to backtrack a little bit. St. Paul in Romans chapter 4 is talking all about Abraham. He brought up circumcision towards the end of chapter 3, saying, God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And when he brings this up, he's changing gears towards the issues concerning heritage between the Jews and the Gentiles. So he brings up in chapter 4, verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And he's, he's switched gears again to talk to the Jews here and say, hey, look, all right, we're all physical descendants of Abraham. Sure, but well, if you want to bring up Abraham and the covenant of circumcision, well, let's see how Abraham was saved. And of course, he brings up in verse three, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he gets into all sorts of issues that we talked about in the last recording regarding justification by faith, believing in the one who saves. And we, we capped off our last recording here with this very important verse in verse 12, to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul here is undermining the idea that it is your physical heritage that makes you a part of the people of God. And it, he is also undermining the idea here that it is your physical circumcision. Remember, in the Old Testament, being circumcised in the heart was way more important to Moses and to the prophets, especially Jeremiah, that's way more important than being circumcised in terms of getting your pee-pee snipped. So, that's the four in verse 13. When we read that word four, it's everything St. Paul has been bringing up, emphasizing the faith of Father Abraham over his flesh and his fleshly descendants. And now we can actually get into our passage. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
Now, we get to that verse and we have to ask, what on earth is St. Paul getting at? What promise to be the heir of the world? And how do we know that it came through the righteousness of faith and not by the law? So, first off, before we turn to Genesis here, if it was through the law, the, the law has one big thesis. The law says, do good to get good from God. But if you do bad, you're going to get a lot of bad from God. If Abraham received this promise, that St. Paul writes that he would be the heir of the world. If Abraham received it through the law, what kind of good would he have to do to earn that good? And is there anything in the scripture saying that he received this promise from God on account of being such a good boy? Well, no, it doesn't. That's what St. Paul is bringing up. So let's go here to Genesis chapter 15, flip and open our Bibles. And when we get to Genesis 15, we're going to see what are the actual circumstances here. I know we read this last time, but it is very, very, very important to read it again. So Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, that is after Abram was blessed by Melchizedek, after he rescued Lot and everything. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And we continue on in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. What on earth is all this about? 
we got to ask the question, what is going on here? And why does St. Paul bring this up? So regarding the heir of the world statement, inheritance of the world, it's when God says, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. When we look at how many stars there are in the sky, we can't count them. Not with the naked eye and with a telescope, I imagine it would take thousands of years to actually go out there and count the stars one by one, assuming you had a good enough telescope and the patience to actually do it. So, Abraham here is given a promise for an inheritance of this family. That's what he's inheriting. And it comes throughout the entirety of the world. St. Paul is going to be bringing up faith again in this passage. Whoever shares the faith of Abraham is counted as one of Abraham's children. It's not by blood. It's not by circumcision of the flesh. It is by sharing his faith. Now you'll notice that there was a, you know, God has Abraham cut up a bunch of these animals. And we're all a little confused here. Why would he do that? Back in the day, back in that day, very ancient practice, if you were going to have a covenant, you took an animal, you split it in half. You literally cut it right in half after you kill it. And then you drag one half a few feet away maybe a few meters away, I don't know. You drag it across, and then the two parties of a covenant walk across those entrails. It sends a very clear message. If I break this covenant with you, or if either party breaks it, let the same thing happen to us that just happened to this cow or this goat. And usually with a covenant like that, both parties would walk through. In this time, it's one party. God alone walks through those entrails. This is a promise of his that has absolutely nothing to do with what Abraham does or doesn't do. Because his faith was sufficient to receive that promise. So when we read here in Romans 4 verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It's all about faith. And if we're getting into the issue of heritage here, of who inherits what, St. Paul is saying, look, this promise came through faith. It was not by law, and it was not by heritage. It came through faith, so the same thing applies to us. And he continues on in verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. That's an interesting statement. But it's all about the dynamics of it. If we bring over here, we look back earlier on chapter 4. He says in verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So St. Paul is saying here in verse 14, if the adherents of the law are doing this, faith doesn't really matter. It's all about your actions. It's all about your works. And nothing that you believe in really matters. It's just about what you do and what you know. And that promise that was through faith, 
that doesn't apply. It doesn't apply. God made a promise that was essentially empty, void. He says the promise is void. So St. Paul here is really hammering all this home. It can't be through the law. And it cannot be through the first law covenant given to Abraham that was about circumcision. So in verse 15, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And here all the antinomians decide they want to chime in. Ha ha, ha ha, if I just ignore the law, I do whatever I want, because the law is gone thanks to Jesus. You see, where there is no law, there is no transgression. I'm not sinning if I'm not thinking about the law when I do it. That's not what St. Paul is getting at. Again, when we get to chapter 6, we will address this idea of, are we supposed to be antinomians? Spoiler alert, no, but we'll give you the reasons once we get to chapter 6. When St. Paul says the law brings wrath, it it doesn't work like this. It does not work like, hmm, I'm doing what I want and I am an innocent party. But then I hear I shouldn't do what I want, but then I, um, I, that just, that means I have to do it now and therefore I get punished. No, no, sin is always sin. Whether or not somebody is aware of it, the Old Testament in Leviticus has a ton of sacrifices in it for if you sin presumptuously. Because if you sin without knowing it, if you sin without knowing it, you are still guilty. If you blurt out that curse word and then forget that you said it. If there was that homeless guy that you saw that you knew that you could have helped him when you should have. You knew this man needed your help and you felt your conscience telling you, I need to help this guy. But then you didn't and then you forgot about it. You still sinned. And maybe, let's say... You should have helped out that homeless guy. You should have given him something, but you didn't know that he needed your help. And you didn't know that you were supposed to help him. That that's what God wanted you to do. Maybe you were just oblivious to it because you're uh, texting on your phone or you're out there, uh, I don't know, having a conversation with your wife and you're trying really, really hard to pay attention to her and you see for half a second this homeless guy and you just feel your conscience for a second, but then it's just data dumped right out of your mind, you still sinned. You're still held accountable for that. I know it sounds unfair, but that's exactly what Paul drives at. So when he says the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression, Is that in your eyes or in God's eyes? A lot of antinomians and uh, a lot of evangelicals will say, well, if I just cover my eyes and say there is no law, or I say I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, I can do what I want now. That's wrong. Because they're not looking at this from God's eyes. God's law brings wrath on you. But when you are saved by the blood of Christ... What the law is saying to you as a penitent believer in Jesus doesn't apply to you anymore. That wrath is no longer applicable to you. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. God does not count your sin against you. It's like the devil could go up to God and say, look at all of your rules and look at what that individual has done. And God looks at you then looks at the devil and says, I see no law condemning him. Oh yes, the law is there. And yes, I do want him to follow it. But I don't see it condemning him here. 
So when St. Paul says, again, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression, we have to, have to, have to look at this from the perspective of God. Otherwise, if we say there is no law, period, well, we're, we're running quite afoul of the book of Galatians, talking about the law's new applicability to the believer in the new obedience. We're uh, getting into Romans chapter 6 here and contradicting it. We're looking at it in a really goofy hermeneutic way. But we continue reading. In verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now that's very important to keep in mind. He is contrasting faith and law. And he is saying, if you don't want the law to come down on you and bring God's wrath on you, then it's got to be by faith. It has to be by trusting in this Jesus to save you from what you deserve. Now, he is still connecting this to Abraham, as we see, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, when he says he's the father of us all, it is by sharing the faith of Abraham. Again, that is a complete and total nullification of any ethnic claim to Abraham. The only people that can claim heritage from Abraham right now as the father of their faith are Christians because we share his faith. Nobody else does. Now, I know, I know, somebody might read this and go, hmm, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Sounds a little bit like we're doing a little bit of both here, aren't we? No, the uh, adherent of the law is a hypothetical. St. Paul has already brought up that your heritage, your circumcision doesn't mean anything to God. And you have no heritage if you are a sinner. It doesn't matter. You can't claim special status before God. But there is still the hypothetical that St. Paul is playing with every now and then of somebody who is this um, super perfect follower of the law. The only one being, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is literally the only person to ever have completely fulfilled the law his entire life, even not being stained by original sin. If we could get an exception clause for real, super-duper law-working people, then St. Paul contradicted himself in the very same verse, because he says it depends on faith. He does not say it depends on faith and also maybe, you know, for some people being really, really good at fulfilling the law. So when he says not only the adherent of the law, that cannot mean a real person who is actually fulfilling the law with the exception of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he says, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, this is a further exclusion of the law playing any role in our salvation. The law tells you you need a savior. The law tells you you are the scum of the earth. The gospel, faith in the holy gospel, is what's going to bring that promise to fruition because it is by grace. Now, what do we mean by grace? Because there's some confusion there. In Roman Catholic circles during the scholastic era, 
and I'm no fan of scholasticism of any stripe really, but in the scholastic era and even continuing into the modern day, grace was seen as kind of this um, electricity, this force that somebody could have a lot of grace. Mary could be full of grace. She could be like a super powerful generator full of grace fuel to get real results. And that led to a lot of really goofy thinking. This is why they believed that monks could earn a merit before God and earn grace, which led to them passing it along to other people while still alive. And the saints have a certain amount of grace that they have that they can also give to you in a certain troublesome time, I guess. Now, that notion obviously is coming from a whole lot of uh, Aquinas, his priors, the Aristotle movement within the Roman Catholic Church, and Renaissance humanism later. The problem with it is that's not grace. Grace has a very simple definition. Grace is giving you the good that you do not deserve. It is a gift. And we know this because St. Paul has made it very, very clear in this very chapter here, Romans chapter 4 and verse 4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you believe that God is really giving you this gift of salvation, without your works, without your merit, Great! That's grace! Because you didn't deserve it. You're a poor, stinking, miserable sinner just like me. And if it's not earned, if it is a gift given to us by God, then we believe in sola gratia, by grace alone. We are not saved by our merits, but rather by God's grace. Now, there's a little bit of argumentation among Protestants as to what exactly that looks like and why it is grace alone. And there's some really goofy ways to see it. Some, some people will tell you that, of course, it's by grace alone. God graciously elected the elect to be saved. But you don't see that in this chapter. St. Paul is talking about the grace of the promise God made to Father Abraham. And later on, the salvation we have by God's grace, meaning him giving us the gift of salvation by sending his son to die in our place. Again, we'll get to election though. I just want to throw that out there. When we think of God's grace, your mind should be going straight to the gospel and all of the blessings that God gives us on account of him seeing Jesus and pouring out his favor upon us for Christ's sake. Now we continue on in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Again, Abraham is the father of the faith. Christians are rightful inheritors of the faith of Abraham. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Uh, this part of this verse is kind of a doxology, a mini doxology here. He does give life to the dead. We see that our Lord gave life to our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I would say all three members of the Trinity are involved in the resurrection and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So not only do we have the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, we also have our own resurrection, which is promised in the gospel. 
And also, calls into existence the things that do not exist, our God created the entire universe just by speaking to nothing. How cool is that? So when St. Paul brings up this, uh, this doxology here, this mini doxology, we can't forget that when he says, I have made you the father of many nations, he said it to Abraham, who was, in terms of fertility, as good as dead. He was about 99 years old, couldn't have any more kids, and that seemed impossible. But it was the power of that promise from the God who can make the dead rise and who can just tell the universe to exist before it existed. Yes, he can make Abraham the father of many nations, not only physically through uh, Sarah and Keturah, but also spiritually and in a very, very real sense, not spiritually in the metaphorical sense. St. Paul is appealing to God's power to fulfill this promise and in, well, also by that way, faith, faith in God's power to do so. And we keep reading. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, St. Paul explaining this way before I did. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So again, our Lord died for us. And God was gracious enough to send his son to die for us. He was powerful enough to make sure that sacrifice counted for us, to pay for our sins. Here is St. Paul saying Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. Yes, this is penal substitutionary atonement. I make no apologies. Fight me. And raised for our justification. So God is powerful enough to do this. And that justification, you believing in this resurrection of Jesus, not as a fact of history, but for you, in addition to being a real historical fact, means this is your salvation. Trust in Jesus, in the one who saved you from your sins, and you will be justified before God Almighty. And unfortunately, due to some home circumstances, uh, namely some flooding in my basement, I'm going to have to call it there before the plumber arrives, and suddenly I'll hear my dog barking at him. So, y'all have a wonderful and blessed today. Walk with our Lord Jesus, who has paid it all. And in his resurrection, us baptized believers have our resurrection. Amen and amen.